0: Thank you for listening to the Faith Bible Church podcast. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit us at faithbiblemd.org. I invite you to take your copy of the Word of God and turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're at verse number 7 today. Hebrews chapter 3, verse number 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. When I was a young fella, one of the things I made a habit of doing was learning from other people's mistakes. Wasn't really motivated by good examples. Someone is succeeding. I'd never look at them and say, oh, wow, I could be like that. I could be great. You know, watch the Rocky movies and watch Rocky Balboa and say, wow, I want to get up early and do intense Train,ing chase chickens and eat raw eggs and become a champion. Nah, I never believed I could be great. I never see myself in those people, but I could see myself in the lives of people who were messing up and suffering because of it. Those were the examples I could relate to. Someone failing a grade, being left behind. That easily could be me. I, I didn't like the thought of failing. I, I better do some studying so I don't bomb this class. I saw friends get kicked out of college. Well, that easily could be me. I, I, uh, that would be so embarrassing to have to go back to my little tiny community and everyone would know that I got booted out of school and what a, what a shame to my folks that would be. And even now, I don't read authors and scholars and think, oh, that inspires me. I should write a book. I should do some conferences I don't look at the big successful ministries and think, I want to be like them, but rather when Jerry Falwell got canned from Liberty University and Bill Hybels was forced to resign from Willow Creek, when someone got booted out of a position because they were sinful and arrogant and defiant, that gets my attention. A former pastor of ours who planted and built the church that we were a member of was forced to step down, allegedly physically abusing his wife and kids. We knew that guy, and we sat under his ministry. He was smarter than me. That happened to him. That stuff gets my attention. Because I know I'm flawed. I know I'm unworthy. I I know my propensity, tendency for stupidity. So I can see myself being foolish and ruining everything. Did that all the time to myself for many years. And finally I said, okay, God, you've got to take over my life because I can't do anything good with it. And I like what he's done. And I don't want to go back to all the regrets. Now, some people are inspired by greatness. And so Moses is someone you can look at and say, ah, Moses, I could be like him. But for people like me, the author says, don't be like the people that Moses was trying to lead. Just as Moses was famous and celebrated by the Jewish people, the generation that Moses was trying to lead out of Egypt, likewise, they're famous Famous for their unbelief, Moses had to deal with challenges to his leadership and dissension within the nation of Israel for more than one occasion. Well, actually, it was 14 occasions in the books of the law where people complained about Moses, even his brother and his sister. Miriam ended up with leprosy because she challenged Moses' leadership. It's never about people's right or ability to question Moses' leadership. No, the issue was Moses was just the messenger he was telling the people what God had said. So they were rejecting not so much Moses' instructions. In reality, they were questioning, rejecting, rebelling against what God was commanding. Even before they got out of Egypt, when Moses was first told to go to Pharaoh with the word of the Lord, let my people go, Pharaoh's response was moral oppressiveness. And the folks said, thanks a lot, Moses. You didn't help one bit. All you and God have done is just make our lives worse. But then God won that showdown with Pharaoh and the nation was free and they were on their way to the promised land. No sooner did they get into the wilderness, the people complained about the lack of water and the lack of food and they worshiped the golden calf while Moses uh, was up on the mountain with God, and, and uh, so there was all that dissension. And then there was people that wanted, wanted to rebel and kill Moses, and the ground opened up and swallowed them up. And there was another time they sent snakes to punish the people. But the biggest challenge to Moses' leadership was what we read of here when Moses gets them to the promised land. The spies go in and come back with this evil report, they contradict God's word and say, We can't conquer this land. And the people believe that evil report. And then God says, I'm done with you. None of this generation is going to inherit the promised land except for Joshua and Caleb. The rest of you are going to die in the wilderness. So the verdict was, all the people who Moses led out of Egypt, all of them have rebellious and unbelieving hearts. God punished them all. And so Moses, on the one hand, is a great example of faithfulness. Meanwhile, the folks he led was the generation famous for their hard-heartedness, being stiff-necked and unbelieving. So they're the example of what not to do. And the Jewish audience here in Hebrews, they know their history. This is not the first time that generation was pointed out as the example of what not to do. The author here in chapter 3 is actually quoting... David, from Psalms 95, David, likewise, is referencing that generation from Exodus. So, turn over to Psalms Psalms 95 for a moment, and let's uh, look at how David said it. Psalms 95. Verse one. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord, Yahweh, is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hand formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in Mirabah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who err in their hearts and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they will not enter into my rest. This is a very timeless psalm. The other week, people thought my microphone was on while I was standing up here singing. And uh, they said, oh, they must have left Pastor Al's mic on. No, it wasn't. That's just me taking the Word of God literally when it comes to worship and praise. Did you catch what he says there? I don't believe in singing apathetically. I don't believe in mumbling through a song or acting disinterested or... Coming in late to avoid the singing. Well, I don't know this song. I don't like that song. I don't really care for Mike LaJoya and that style of singing. I prefer something else. Sorry, Mike. I just want to hear the word. More preaching and less singing. Ooh, you sound so spiritual when you say that. Except when the word of God instructs. You like these passages, don't you, Mike? Let us sing for joy. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. Uh oh, your attempt to sound super spiritual just got exposed. Your immaturity and disobedience is showing. God's word says, let us sing, let us shout for joy. You're yeah, too cool to sing. You're too cool to obey God's word. I like that. Shout for joy. Worship is not supposed to be quiet. Have you ever heard a quiet shout? David invites the audience. Let us sing. Let us shout. Let us come. Why? Verse four. For the Lord is great. Verse three. He's king above all the gods. In his hands, the depths of the earth are made. Verse six, come, let us worship and bow down. Kneel before the Lord, our God, our maker. Why? Because he's our God and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his hands. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. It's what happened in Moses' time. It was the concern in David's time in Psalms chapter 95. Actually, the scholars tell us that Psalms 95 would have been one of the Psalms that was recited at the coronation of the second temple. The temple that Ezra built when the people came back out of exile 70 years in Babylon. Why were they exiled 70 years in Babylon? Why was the first temple? Why was the city of Jerusalem destroyed? Because of the hard hearts. The same reason. So Psalms 95 was read at the second temple coronation to say, guys, let's not do that again. And yet, what happened when Jesus showed up in Jerusalem? He encountered the hard-hearted people. And the point David was making in Psalms 95 is very similar to what the author of Hebrews has been saying, reiterating. Just like David, the greatness of God, the Father, God, the Son, he says Consider Jesus. And we learn, consider Jesus, because he's better than the angels. He's counted more worthy for glory than Moses. David says, then uh, chapter 95, verse number eight, don't harden your hearts, as in the did in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and they tried me. For 40 years, I loathe that generation. There are people who err in their hearts. They don't know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they won't enter my rest. The author of Hebrews, he warns us, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He says, we are the household of God if we hold fast to Jesus. This is what we've been learning. And then he remembers David's admonishments and he says, oh, that's a a good point. Let me include that example from our history into my warning to the people. Because it's the exact same thing. His audience in Hebrews is hardening their hearts, rejecting the revelations of God, the will of God. But see, the interesting thing here is the audience here in the book of Hebrews thinks they are quite acceptable because they're claiming to follow Moses. We hear you, David. We read Psalms 95 and we would never be like that generation that came out of Egypt. We would never do that. We would never go against Moses. We're hardcore, committed to Moses. But that wasn't the issue in the New Testament. The issue wasn't going against Moses. The issue was going against the revealed will of God, hardening their hearts, rejecting God. The New Testament Hebrews are doing the exact same thing, only this time it's Jesus. God didn't send Moses to die for their sins and be their Messiah. He sent his son, Jesus, and they are doing the exact same thing to Jesus that the first generation did to Moses. In Exodus, following Moses was the will of God for the nation of Israel. There was no other option. There was no other way. It was trust Moses and you're going to get to the promised land or you will die in the wilderness. And those are your two options. And that's literally what happens. Well, guess what? It's the same thing. The Hebrews and we are being offered the exact same thing. Moses' experience was literal. He's a literal guy, literally walking around in the desert, but he was also a type. What's a type, you ask? A type is a representation of one thing by another. Something is literally happening but it is a representation of what is coming. And as we study the Bible, we see the types are very repetitious. Adam sins, an animal sacrifice is made, and the skins of the animal are a covering. Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son, but his son is spared when God provides a ram to die in his place. The children of Israel were set free from slavery when the death angel came into Egypt and killed the firstborn in every family. But if a male lamb was without blemish, was sacrificed and the Hebrew family put the blood on the doorpost of their home, the death angel would pass over him. All of those were types repeating the same idea And then Jesus, the only born sinless son of God, who John the Baptist identified as, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was crucified, died to cover our sin and guilt, like Adam. Died to, in our place, like the Lamb did for Abraham's son, Isaac, Die to set us free from slavery and bondage like the blood of the lamb did for Israel in Egypt. All of those were types representing what Jesus was coming to do. Lead us out of our Egypt. Moses is leading Israel out of slavery to the promised land is a type of what Jesus is doing for us. Leading us out of our Egypt. Well, what is your Egypt? It is whatever the world, the flesh, and the devil has trapped you in. Just like Israel was trapped in Egypt, the devil wants to keep you dead in your trespasses and sins, serving him, building his kingdom until you die. But Jesus, like Moses, comes along and he leads us out of the sin slavery and he leads us through this wilderness. And what is... This wilderness—it's your physical life. It's what we're experiencing right here, right now on Earth. The uh, thought of that cool old book that explores this idea—you ever read *Pilgrim's Progress*? Thing was written in 1678, and it's an allegory of—it's fiction, but it's also our realities of our lives. Every day we wake up. And we journey through this wilderness, traveling to the promised land. If you obey Jesus, you will get there. If you reject him, you're not going to make it. And just like Israel, those are the only two options humanity has. Follow Jesus, you get to the promised land, reject Jesus, you're going to die in the wilderness. And the consequences will be the same. The Israelites who said, let's quit following Jesus and let's just go back to Egypt. Did they make it back to Egypt? No, they, they died, right? The Israelites who said, ah, I don't like these laws that Moses gave us. Uh, did they get another set of laws? No, they, they died. The Israelites who got all the way up to the promised land and said, they don't believe God can, can, can get us in safely. We don't trust that he's strong enough. There must be some other way, some other land. Did they get anything else? No, they died. Rip. Young people like to say that. Rip when something is bad or it doesn't go well. And the same is true for every person around the world. Wherever they are, whenever they are, there's only ever been one option. Follow Jesus to the promised land or you die. And I'm not talking about physical death. I'm talking about eternal damnation. Eternal damnation. The consequences for the generation who rejects Moses was, according to Hebrews Chapter 3, verse 11. They shall not enter my rest. Let's define the word rest. It's a very big topic in Scripture. You know when it was first, jumps onto the scene, right? When do you first read about rest? Genesis, right, right? The very beginning. In the beginning, God created everything in six days. And on the seventh day, God rested. Rested. And this was a pattern that he gave us. You're supposed to work for six days, and on the seventh, you're supposed to rest. Rest can be used to mean literal, physical sleep, like some of you are doing right now. It's okay, just don't snore. Cessation from work implies refreshment, and as the result of resting, you get refreshed, a renewal of energy and a renewal of abilities. God mandated it in the law, the Sabbath, is to set aside as a day of rest. So he did it, and then he actually canonized it and made it law for not just you, but for your cow. supposed to rest too. It said, observe the Sabbath by keeping it holy as the Lord your God commanded you six days. You shall labor, do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male or female servants or your ox or your donkey or any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your town so that your male and female servants may Rest as you do. And even the land, the ground was supposed to rest. Every seventh year, the land was supposed to lay furlough. It was a practical thing to do because the land is able to replenish its nutrients and be more productive if you give it a break. But if you just work it and work it and work it, it becomes depleted of nutrients and non-productive. Israel, in the Old Testament, when they stopped obeying the law, they ignored that rest for the land for 490 years. This, so they disobeyed that. They didn't give the land rest for 490 years, which means they owed how many years off? 70 years of rest. And guess how long they were exiled out of the land and sent to Babylon? Seventy years they were taken into captivity and the land got its sabbatical rest. When you see these details, you realize that God takes his word very literally. Maybe we ought to too, eh? For the Israelites, when they were slaves, they had no rest. They had to toil and labor every day until they died. And then when they were freed from Egypt, they still really didn't have a whole lot of rest because they were on the move. They were traveling every day on that journey to the promised land. And once they get to the promised land, that means they wouldn't have to pack up their tent every day, pack up that mule every day, walk 10 miles every day, stop and do the whole thing again, the same thing every day. Once they got to their own land, then they wouldn't have to do that anymore and they could rest from their journey. Rest is used as another way of communicating the concept of peace. Or no military conflict. We see this in Judges. As an example, chapter 3. Typical cycle in Judges. Someday we'll study Judges. It's a crazy book. But the sons of God cried out to the Lord. And the Lord delivered them. uh, For the sons of Israel set them free. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he judged Israel. And he went to war. And the Lord handed over Cush, Riza, Thanim, king of Mesopotamia. And he prevailed over the king of Mesopotamia. <laughs> then the land had what? Rest for 40 years. Lots of applications for the word rest. There's literal rest for our bodies. There's the land. There's rest from war. The word is also used To refer to our well-being, our mind and our spirit, as opposed to being stressed out and anxiety riddled. Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Sin and sickness and separation from God brings strife and frustration to our souls. As when the psalmist says, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I have no rest. Some of you have those sleepless nights, right? You're worrying about this and you're stressed out about that. You just can't turn the brain off. Job had that unsettledness as Job was going through all his trials. I am not at ease, I am not quiet, and I am not at rest. Turmoil comes. Job wasn't feeling the blessings of God. He didn't feel safe, he couldn't rest. Physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. It's a good time, I think, to revisit What we're trying to accomplish here at Faith Bible Church. Uh, I think a lot of folks have realized there's a lot going on at Faith Bible Church. Man, what are we doing here? What are we trying to build with all these things going on? Well, here's what it is. Going back to the imagery of the house. We did that last week. Uh, And and who likes tiny houses? Some people like the, oh, I would like to build a tiny house. Your life is a tiny house, okay? You literally are here today. You are a tiny house. And uh, your tiny house has four walls built on the foundation. If the foundation is God's word, Jesus is the rock upon which you build your life, then you erect four walls. And these walls are your health, your finances, your relationships, and your ministry. These are the things of your life. These are the areas that life is essential. These are the walls. And if one of these walls is missing, you're going to feel it. You won't feel complete. You will feel a brokenness. You think about all of our prayer requests. Don't they all revolve around something out of those four categories? Somebody's got sick. It's always the health. If somebody needs a job, here we are. We're praying about finances. And then we're praying for our prodigals. And those are those relationships. And praying for marriages. And then, of course, the ministries and the work of God. That's a spiritual life. So these are the four areas We never feel blessed if one of those walls is busted out. The blessings is the roof and roofs protect us from storms and they protect us from heat and they protect us from the cold of winter and we feel safe and we are at rest in our homes. Job's example, he had all four walls kicked out all at one time and they were all torn down and he had no rest. The word of God tells us how to properly build our lives in those four categories and we're trying to help people get those walls up built on the word of God so that you can feel blessed so that you can have rest. It's what Jesus is offering when he says, come unto me I am the word come unto me and you will find rest. And the psalmist says in Psalm 62, truly my soul finds rest rest in God salvation comes from him then there's the application I told you there's a lot in rest eh just that one word but then there's the application of the word rest in reference to dying rip rest in peace it's not literally that phrase found in scripture but it's pretty close Especially here in Isaiah chapter fifty-seven, the righteous person perishes; no one takes it to heart. The devout person is taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous person is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. He they rest in their beds, each one who walks in an upright way. So this is the closest the Bible comes to that phrase, "rest in peace," and people who die are said to be asleep. That's a very common reference. Dying, sleeping, some crassly taking a dirt nap. But we see this in First Thessalonians chapter 4. They use that type of terminology. I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That they're not sleeping in church, but they're actually dead. And you're grieving as the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again from the dead, so God will bring those who have died, who have fallen asleep. But then death is what leads us to the ultimate rest. The final way the word is used, the ultimate rest in paradise. And we see this, for example, in Revelation chapter 6. And uh, John is giving us this scene in heaven and verse number 10, they cried out with a loud voice, the people who were died and martyred, and they're now in heaven. They're saying, Before the throne of God, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? See, they're in heaven. Get these guys who did this to us. And they were given a white robe, and they were told they should what? Rest for a little while longer, till the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be complete also. So the ultimate resting place is heaven. When there in heaven, we are free from the curse of toil and labor. We're free from the physical earthly struggles of trying to stay alive, which is really what we're basically doing every day, right? We're trying to keep our families alive and feed and clothe and shelter. and, And it's just every day at work, challenge. Free from the trials and temptations, our final resting place is paradise. And we long for that day. This is where Jesus is leading us. Where we are, we are now in this wilderness and we are journeying to this promised land, this heavenly home, this new Jerusalem, this new heaven and this new earth spoken of by John in Revelation chapter 20, 21, 22. Okay, so now we have officially defined what rest is. The generation that came out of Egypt did not make it to the rest. They died in the wilderness. And David warns the nation, in in Psalms 95, of this historical tragedy, and then the author here in Hebrews reiterates the warning to the believing Hebrews. It would be a tragedy to not enter the rest. And how could that even be possible? And he says, take care, brethren, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, that there not be any one of you An evil and unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. That's how you don't enter into the rest. An evil and unbelieving heart that you fall away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Well, it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as when they provoked me. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear they will not enter his rest? But those who were disobedient. So we see That they were not able to enter. Because of what? Unbelief. Right? He starts it in verse 12 and says. Unbelieving heart. And then he wraps up that rationale in verse 19. Unbelieving heart. Falling away from the living God. The issue is believing. The issue is faith. As the generation came right up to the promised land. They doubted that God would be able to give it to them. They doubted God's promises. They doubted his power. They didn't believe he was true enough and strong enough and because they believe lies instead of truth they had evil hearts there's lots of things that god has said is true that people do not believe nowadays i'm sure you can think of many things that god has said that people disagree with everything from how we all got into existence right creation to the Ten Commandments, to his standards for morality and righteousness, his decreed will on what is right and what is wrong, if you agree with what God has said in our day and age, they will label you a religious extremist. You religious extremist people. The very notion that there is life after death, that there is heaven and there is hell, a judgment seat where you will stand before God and you'll have to give an account for your life. Most Americans are repelled by that idea. No, 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 no. God is loving and he would never judge anyone. God would never send anyone to hell. There's no such thing. But his word says that there is and his word, he said, that's what he does. Well, if that's the kind of God he is, then I want nothing to do with him. Which is exactly why he's sending you to hell. Because that's the place where wine can have nothing to do with God. And that just makes the matter when you point that out. Why are you mad, bro? Come on. Think for a minute. Why are you mad? As the nation was journeying through the wilderness, they just got tired and cranky. They didn't like the food. There wasn't enough water. They didn't like God's laws. They didn't like the plan. They didn't like the strategy of how to get into the promised land. People died along the way, and that really made them upset. Why are you mad? I bet, if you're honest, it's probably one of those same reasons why people got upset at Moses. Why don't you believe in God? I asked my best friend from high school because I asked him for something specific and he didn't answer me. So that proves he wasn't there, he replied. Or proves that he said no to your request. You didn't get what you want and you think that proves that God's not there. No, it just proves that you're mad because you're not getting your way. All it proves is that you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Which is exactly what it takes to fall away from the living God. All these people who love you and invest in you, who have tried to share with you the great things that God has done in their lives. You don't believe them. Something about this journey, this wilderness... This leadership of Jesus, this is is offensive to you. We know people like that, don't we? People are here today who are like that. But you know the good news? I like what he said here in verse number 13. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Today is called today. Today. Today is now. This present moment. This is the time. This is the space we occupy. And today is all we ever have. It's all we ever know. We know not if we have another day, another time, another chance to turn back to God. So we encourage one another every day to follow Jesus. To not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The author says, encourage one another, verse 13, day after day, as long as it's still today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And that's what we must do. We must not give up on anyone. We have to keep loving and encouraging and instructing, hoping, always hoping that the Holy Spirit will speak to that person, melt that cold heart, awaken that spiritually dead person. We pray for people's families every day here. Some of your children, every day. You've got some hard-hearted kids. It seems like they're hell quite literally. But we will never stop praying. Amen? We'll never stop encouraging. As long as there is Today. One of these todays, they're going to come back. You believe that? One of these days will be today. For we have become partakers of Christ if, here's another conditional clause, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Sounds like a, that conditional clause we learned last week, verse 6. Did he say? Christ was faithful as a son over the house whose house we are if we hold fast. If we keep a firm commitment. One of the practical reasons why we take communion habitually it's so good for us because it just keeps the idea of being a partaker of Christ right here in our faces so we don't forget about it. Partaker. I think we should stop there because That's uh, an important theme, partakers of Christ. And then not entering the rest, the whole rationale. These are monumental, significant statements that have relevance for our life here and for our eternal life to come. So let's take a break. Today, we looked at the great example of what not to do. The generation who was led out of Egypt, they did not rip. They died, but they did not, what was the word? Rest. They did not rest in peace. Now we understand what rest is. Think about it. Are you ever going to get there? Are you ever going to have that rest? The author showing us how. It all begins and it all ends with Jesus. But you've got to hold fast to Jesus. Lord, help us to hold fast to you. You are our God. You are the way, the truth, the life. Thank you for that song that we sang. May that resonate in our hearts. May that resonate in our minds. May our faith be built up. May it come to life. You will bring somebody's heart to life even today that the revival will come and people will sing the glory of your name. We need you, Jesus. Everybody needs you. There is no other way. We can reject you and just die in the wilderness, but if we follow you, we'll get to that eternal glory. We long for that time, but we want everybody to come with us. We want everyone to follow you. Help us keep working and never stop. And we pray for these ones that are struggling. They're angry. They're mad. We pray that they would turn from that deceitfulness of sin, turn back to you. Do a mighty work only you can do. We pray this in Jesus' name.